Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 337 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher series. How are you, Al? Well, I'm okay, Val, which is, you know, regular listeners will know is quite a cheery reaction yes, for me. Yes, that's fantastic. Generally speaking, yes. No, I am actually quite good because um, The Fire Star, which is my book coming out in September, has Ooh, yes. gone to print. <gasps> oh, wow. There's a little moment of yahoo. It is yes. out of the building and it yes. is on its way into the world. So next time oh, I really? see it, it will be an actual, the actual thing. book, which is wow. kind of exciting and also a little bit uh, nerve-wracking. Because now this people is... will start reading it. <laughs> I would imagine that you'd be more than okay at such a milestone. I oh, know. I don't think you ever <laughs> get good at it. I don't. I think you kind of. I'm. 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 I'm sort of. Yes, I'm excited. Yes, there mm-hmm. is that moment of it. But I'm also very. Um, you know, there's there is that notion that it's out. It's gone now. I can't. I can't do anything else and so mm. now it just has to do what it's going to do and that's that's sort of like nerve-wracking as well. Yes. You know what I mean? yeah. Okay. So, I'm, so right. I'm okay. So it balances out into okay, Val. See, okay. Right in the middle. Um, and what about you? How are you? What's going on with your in your life, Valerie? Ooh. Let's talk about you. What's going on in my life? I just went to my local bookshop where I bumped into this morning, Joanna Nell, who is a fantastic novelist, graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre. Her third novel is coming out in November. So that is Oh, I good. just saw the cover reveal for that and it's so yes, gorgeous. And the little um, book trailer thing that they did to reveal the cover was so cute. It was That's really right. lovely. Yeah. Very, very good. So then also I am kind of recovering from um, yesterday I spent all day like from 9 to 5.30 with 60 – I was training 60 people, 6-0, on Zoom in content writing. So that wow. was um, full on. And I'm exhausted so thought, just thinking about that. I, I know. So That's I thought hard. I would reward myself today oh. with a cronut. So I cronut. drove not a all the way – uh, no, because I wanted it now. Like, but not right. not a daytime thing. Um, so all I right. drove all the way to the cr- fantastic Cronut shop. But the queue was ridiculous that right. I knew that I wouldn't get back in time for us to, to do this. So I have given up Cronuts for you, Al. Oh, I, look, I'm very <laughs> – I'm sure that our, our listeners are very excited by the fact that you did that. Can I just ask how far one has to drive for a cronut from your house? Actually, not that far, but they're limited, limited um, hours. They've, they obviously do oh. so well that they barely need to open. Right. I think yeah, you need so. to get some home delivery in, oh, clearly. Yeah, well, something. Clearly. Send an Uber. Like, come on, Val. <laughs> I or do just that. order the Bonoffi and have it later. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Mm. Oh, no, tonight I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to have apricot Danish, Sarah Lee. Okay. okay. What, the whole thing? Uh, <laughs> no, not the whole thing. Um, a slice, you know. All right, so this is not so you want to eat dessert. No, no, So we sorry. should probably move on. Um, yes, yes. What have you it got was for just us? that I had to recover. All right, so oh. we want to give a big shout-out to Kirsty. Kirsty kindly left us a lovely review and said, Val and Al, I found the bum glue. 
Oh, Yahoo. <laughs> I love it when, when it comes out of the back of the cupboard. That's fantastic. Oh, um, uh, Kirsty says, I simply love your podcast and your sound advice on writing in life. Hopefully you will get a giggle that I have found the bum glue. (laughs) We did. Thank you. (laughs) The two storage boxes that contained my completed freehand first draft of a novel many moons ago are currently being typed up. I'm reinventing myself beginning with um, freelance writing with the Australian Writer Centre, the course, but slowly fueling the creative fire. So many courses I'd like to try until I find my place in the writing world. Even when I'm fair to middling, I keep <laughs> showing up. <laughs> Fantastic. Go, Kirsty. <laughs> Baby steps, Val. I love your author's journeys each week and cringe with Al in anticipation to hear the word of the week. <laughs> Yeah, hear that? Cringe. She cringes. Just want you to like focus on that particular word of the week. Cringe. A, a great many thanks to you both from Kirsty. Thank you so Thank you much, so much Kirsty. Kirsty. Yeah. That's brilliant. Thank you. And can I just a little shout out to last week's um reviewer, Chopper. Oh yes. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for coming into the So You Want to Be a Writer uh, podcast community Facebook group and explaining all of Chopper. that because it made me laugh so much. I was just like, this is great. So um, I, I do love it. it. You know, it's a funny thing because Val and I sit here and we talk to each other every week and um, it's almost like, you know, you kind of know that people are listening, but then there's, you know, maybe they're not. And and then, you know, somebody responds like that and we know that you're out there and it's really just lovely to see. So thank you so much for that. Yes. And of course, Chopper, is was was actually she was I think she was using her husband's iTunes account or yeah, something, but yeah, it's something her to husband's do with the nickname. default review name. Yeah, yeah. So thanks oh, for that. Do. All right, so let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. Uh, we've got a couple of posts for you, a couple of links that we want to talk about, and the first is actually on the Australian Writers Centre blog, and it's called Twenty One Simple Ways to Promote Your Book." Now, this is good because so many times we think that we write the book and we put it out there and then the world magically discovers it. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But even the most amazing books need a little bit of help along the way. So we've put together 21 ways that you can promote your book that are very, very straightforward. And so we're not going to go through all 21 because, of course, you can have a look in your um, in the show notes for that. And you can find that at So You Want to Be a Writer com.au go to the link uh, but a couple of things that um, I think are important and that number one is be active on social media I mean that's yeah. just a given right because social media is it such an important part of building your author platform and that is one of the ways that you a promote your book but b more importantly connect with people and that's when right. you connect with people often they will promote it for you that's exactly right. And it's interesting because um, the thing I like about this list is that a lot of people say, you know, well, it, there's a, a sense, I think, that of just not knowing where to start. You know, I've written this book. I have no idea where to start. What do I do? I, it, there's too many options. I can't think of what, what I need to do to actually get the word about it, uh, mm-hmm. out about it. And what I like about this process is just a really simple list. And yes. some of these things are going to be you going, rolling your eyes and going, well, yes, of course. But Other things are things you may not have thought of. And I think the other thing too is just to remember that just because you think you know about it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to do it. Whereas this allows you, it's like a 21-point checklist. You can tick the things off that interest you. You can 
you know, like, okay, you know about Pinterest, but you don't want to do it, fine. Put a line through that. That's totally fine. Because I think that one of the most important things to consider about, you know, promoting anything, like building a brand as an author, promoting your book, doing whatever, is you need to feel comfortable with it. You have to Mm. be comfortable doing it because if you are not comfortable doing it, everybody is going to know, despite your best efforts, that you are not comfortable doing it. And so, you know, it becomes awkward. So, you know, if Twitter is not for you, and at the moment I completely understand why it might not be because it's a you know it's a fairly interesting time to be on that particular platform where everybody has a voice and everybody's shouting all the time mm-hmm. and that's what it does feel like a bit at the moment if that's not working for you take yourself off to the calmer waters of Instagram or you know if you're more familiar with Facebook be on Facebook where you understand yes. the environment and you understand what what's likely to like set people off and what's not. Um, So, you know, it's a matter of being comfortable where you are, being smart about it. Um, Mm. You don't have to be there all the time. You can use, um, you know, post uh, scheduling tools to actually, you know, put things out there. You can start to work out how much time you need to spend there. And, you know, it doesn't have to be very much. You just need to show up occasionally, like, well, you know, regularly, but you just need to show up. You don't have to spend 24 hours sitting there monitoring your Twitter or monitoring your, um, your other group. So think about the kinds of things that you're interested in doing, the kinds of things that you're going to actively do as opposed to the mm. things that you think you should do and then set stuff up. Like newsletters, I think, are one thing that people think, I need a newsletter, I've got to do a newsletter, they'll set up a newsletter, um, and then it just becomes another thing that they have yeah. to do and then they never do it, you know. So if it's if it's causing you massive grief, don't, don't. do it. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, work on what you can work on at the moment and you might find down the track that you are happy to set up a newsletter because you feel like you've got something to say or maybe yes. you just want to send one out when you've got a book coming out. It doesn't have to be like a regular monthly thing. So it's it's all about you working out, you know, your place in the paddling pool, so to speak, mm. and what you're sort of happy to, happy to do and happy not to do. And I think, you know, this is a, a great uh, list to, to, for you to think think about because like not everybody is going to want to start a podcast like clearly Mm. like Val and I have been doing this for a long time it takes Mm. a lot of time like I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't and so it's not something that you want to jump into thinking oh that looks like it'd be fun because it is a lot of work Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't be on other people's podcasts, that you can't, you know, put yourself out there as a a guest with specific expertise or, uh, and be interviewed. And if you're going to do that, have a practice with somebody, get somebody to interview you so that you've got an idea, like think about the kinds of questions that someone is going to ask you. Like you guys listen to these podcasts all the time. You know, the kinds of questions that Valerie and I are asking people over and over and over again. And they are, you know, there are a lot of questions that will come up for you as an author over and over and over again. So think about what they are and have answers ready because it's going to make your interviews so much easier for you than scrabbling around all the time wondering what's going to happen next sort of thing. So anyway, I I thought it was a really handy little list and I think it's yes. a great thing just to um, – and even if you haven't, you know, if you're still writing your book, if, you, if, it's, if you've only just finished it, at least – have a look at this to get an idea of the kinds of yes. things that you might need to start working towards because, you know, one of the things on the list is create a website and I am here to tell you that it is one of the most important <laughs> things that you can do. I am yes. also here to tell you that getting it right can mm. take some time and that the first thing that you put up there is not the end game because, you know, here I am 10 years later and as we've as I've bored you with for weeks and weeks, I've been, I've been you know, reworking this website from the back end and, and that's 
you know, that's okay. It's not it's, it's a movable feast. It doesn't have mm. to be set in stone and it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be there so that you've got your real estate, you know, you're, you're leasing your spot, you're there to go. Yeah, absolutely. So um, another one that I like out of this list is to um, build a relationship with your local bookstore because maybe yeah. you could do a launch event there. But in conjunction with that, make that book launch accessible. I think one of the things that COVID has taught us is the ability to connect with each other online even more than we did before, like with, you know, Zoom sessions and Facebook lives and stuff like that. So maybe stream your book launch, you know, if if things are going back to normal anyway at some point. If you're going to have your launch in an actual bookstore, don't just confine it to the 70 people who can come to the bookstore live stream it for people who are interested and you can do that for free yeah and can't Mm. make it so we'll put the link in the show notes as we mentioned um and then you can check it out from there all right so the other link that we have uh is i think one from you al excuse me do you mind stepping off my shoulder so this post is a post by one of our uh, podcast community members. So every week on Wednesdays, we have the imaginatively named Writing <laughs> Post Wednesday or Wednesday <laughs> Writing Post or something along those lines, where we um, invite members of our podcast community to share links to, you know, po- blog posts or whatever that they've written that are related to writing. And um, this week, this post came up from Valerie Miller and she uh, blogs at ValerieGMiller.com. Hi, Valerie. I hope you're listening. Um, And she's written a post called, Excuse Me, Do You Mind Stepping Off My Shoulder? And it's all about the inner critic. And the reason that this is actually quite a timely post for me because I did an interview this morning that uh, we will hear on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. Um, And it is a, from a very highly regarded award-winning author and we had a, quite a conversation about the inner critic and the fact that everybody has these moments of feeling like even this person, even other high-profile authors that he um, talks about in this in this particular interview because they are people that he is friends with, that he has discussed this subject with, even these amazing – I mean, honestly, listen – listen out for it. Um, you know, he mentions names that and my jaw was dropping on the desk thinking surely that person has never had a moment of self-doubt, but in fact mm-hmm. they have. Um, and then I saw this article uh, by Valerie, which is all about the inner critic. And she talks about how, you know, she studied acting and they had a whole session where they had to deal with the inner critic, you know, because obviously when you're an actor, you know, you're going to have that little voice in your head the whole time going, are you really sure you want to do this on a stage, you know, with all these people looking at you. Um, and, you know, she they had to, you know, conjure up a real entity for what this inner critic looked like. And I love the fact that um, Valerie describes hers as a man who'd stepped out of the 1920s with slick, black, shiny hair, a pencil-thin moustache <laughs> and a black tuxedo with coattails. And, um, you know, like Very I nice. quite like the look of that with mm-hmm. that. But it was – she talks about how, you know, as a, as a as now a, a writer, an aspiring writer, the inner critic is making regular appearances again and, mm. um, you know, how the fear of, of you know, do you – you know, the, the self-doubt gets in and bullies away any confidence that you might have. Um, 
And it's, you know, fear of failing, fear of being laughed at, all of those things is what brings out your inner critic. And she talks about some of the things that she does that she's learned to do over the years to deal with this destructive little voice in your head that can undermine you so easily, you know. Um, And one of the things she says is that she just keeps writing because, you know, letting your imagination and your writing nourish your creativity is one of the best ways to fend off that inner voice. It's just a matter of, okay, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, She has a quote above her desk, first drafts don't need to be perfect, but they do need to be written. And, you know, Valerie and I talk about that a lot. You, You can't fix something that isn't there. You have to get this down. Um, Mm. She keeps learning and refining her craft, applying, you know, everything she's learned over her life of all of these different things um, to her writing. And she reminds herself that like every new skill, writing takes practice and and it takes time to develop the the process that you're going to use to write a novel that you're going to use to develop a character um it's one of those things i think that you people you know you you if you're going to try to write something, you've probably at some point been good at English or been told that you can write or, you know, being told that you're creative. And so you feel like it should be easy for you because, you know, writing a 2000 word story in year 12 was easy for you. Um, but then sitting down to write a 100,000 word novel involving several points of view. It's a big undertaking. And I think it's really important to remember that every single step of the way, it's new for you and it requires practice. So I just wanted to share the post because I thought it was an important thing to talk about and particularly on top of this interview I did this morning. Um, And I think um, Valerie's done a great job here of just, you know, breaking it down and talking about, you know, how she deals with it. And as she Um, As she says towards the end, you know, I know my inner critic will always drop in, but I hope over time I can say not today, thank you, and send him on his way. I love that. I do too. It's a beautiful little post and I and I just, you know, I hope that everybody um, can at some point, you know, wrangle that inner critic to the ground and be yes. like, not today. Slam the door in his face, you know, with I his pencil-thin moustache. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, lovely post, Valerie. Thank you very much for sharing it in the group. Yes, thank you. And we'll put the link in the show notes, of course. Yeah. Now, um, this week we don't have a competition because we've been a bit busy over at the Writer Centre. <laughs> we have been busy. Well, the Furious so, Fiction came out and, the, you know, yes. there's been all this stuff going on. So All happening. Hmm. So, of course, if you want to know the winner of Furious Fiction, go to furiousfiction.com.au. And if you're not familiar with Furious Fiction, then it is um, a wonderful short, short story competition that occurs every month on the first Friday of every month. And so you should register and join up. Just go to furiousfiction.com.au and sign up to be part of the fan club because then you will be notified of the little the little parameters that you have to um, adhere to in order to enter Furious Fiction. It starts at 5 o'clock on the first Friday of every month and then you have 55 hours to write a 500-word story by midnight on the Sunday. So, it's, so that'll it's be this week, that won't weekend. it? Yes, that's be this right. Week? Yeah, okay, we're there. We're there, yes. So then, uh, and there's a winner. Uh, who wins five hundred dollars? So well, it's a fantastic competition full of ifs, <laughs> um, and uh, and and uh, the the winner is always. It's just, I mean, it's such a pleasure to read anyone in the short list or long list or whatever you want to call it, uh, because it's so great to see all of the talent out there. 
Mm-hmm. Of course, the shortlist is also um, published. So just head on over to furiousfiction.com.au. Um, if, however, you are a competition junkie, do go to writercentre.com.au <laughs> slash win because no doubt there will be something there for you yeah, to be enter. Something. Yeah, some fabulous books. Something. So, Al, mm. are you ready for the word of the week? Oh, you know, I'm cringing, but I'm there. <laughs> All right. Now, this is a good one. Well, they're all good, really. But this one is jejun. J-E-J-U-N-E. Jejun. Or you could, some people might say it's jejun, but jejun or jejun. Okay. Yeah, no. It's not a common word. Not a common word, but it could be a good word if you're, you know, one of those Scrabble people. It means dull, boring, or uninteresting. Mm. So you might say the politician's jejun speech completely lacked substance. You could say that. You're right. But you know what? You couldn't play it in Scrabble because there's only one J in Scrabble. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Bomb. You know, whatever. Good try. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that is this week's Word of the Week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Here's what Joanna Nell had to say. It almost sounds a little bit melodramatic to say, but the discovering the courses at the Australian Writers really did actually change my life. Through discovering writing, uh, I have completely had a new career. I must admit that I feel a much more sort of fulfilled and and balanced person uh, as a result of that finding a channel for that creativity. The Creative Writing Stage 1 course was exactly the approach that I needed, that sort of nuts and bolts, step-by-step approach. One of the things I found the most useful in the course was actually also one of the most terrifying at, at, at the start, which was giving and receiving of critique. really is a very important way that a writer can improve. The other great aspects of being a member of the Australian Writers' Centre is that uh, that sense of community. Finding people who are like-minded, your people, your tribe. I'm the author of The Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village, which is my debut novel. And so really it was completely a dream come true. Often meet many people who say that they would like to write a book but don't know where to start or they have a story but they don't have the time to do it. And I think that this is where somewhere like the Australian Writers' Centre can really show them the way to do it, and it certainly did for me. And I think I'm you know, living proof of what they can achieve. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash writing. All right, so our writer in residence this week is Chris Flynn. Now, his book is just... Oh... It's just a, it's it's so different (laughs) and it is very compelling and it is called Mammoth. Now, Mm -hmm. Chris has written a um, couple of novels before, but I reckon this is the one that is going to, oh, it's, 
it's going to make such a huge impact on the literary landscape, I think. Uh, But Chris can tell you about it directly. So let's have a listen to Chris. Chris, thanks for joining us today. That's my pleasure, Valerie. Congratulations on your latest book, Mammoth. Now, this is a book with a difference. And the minute I found out about it, I was so intrigued. And so many people were saying, oh, have you ever heard about this book? Have you read this book? And it is unique. So I'm just going to let you kind of tell listeners, for those of them who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, what it's about. Right. It's a... It is essentially um, set during the night before a 2007 natural history auction, a real auction that happened in New York. And the the creatures that were up for sale were a variety of dinosaurs and megafauna fossils. And so the book um, has these creatures talking to each other the night before the auction, telling each other how they died, when they died, who dug them up, why they were dug up, and what's been happening to them since. So it jumps back through history to the end of the Ice Age and then round about the start of the 19th century when the mammoth, the lead narrator, was dug up and what happened to him over the subsequent few years. Now, this is such a clever idea and one that makes, before you read it, makes you scratch your head and think, how in the world is he going to pull this off? How in the world did you get this idea in the first place? <laughs> um, it came from a variety of sources, really. Um, firstly, was the the real life auction. When I heard about it, it piqued my interest because there was a Tyrannosaurus skull up for sale, and that was fought over by um, some celebrities. Nicolas Cage and Leonardo DiCaprio both tried to get it. Nicolas Cage ended up getting it for two hundred and seventy six thousand dollars. He hung it on his wall for a few years and then it turned out to have been stolen and exported illegally from Mongolia. So he had to give it back. And this was in in itself a sort of odd little curious news story. But then I read roughly the same time, I read that um, in 1800, just after the American election, President Jefferson was doing pretty much exactly the same thing. Um, He was looking for mammoth bones and sending these pioneers out into the wilderness to try and find them. He even thought they might still exist. Mm-hmm. And for the and for the same reason, to basically appropriate this symbol of power from the animal kingdom, to show what a big man he was, to show how strong America was, how great it was. And so it, it really speaks to the, um, the patriarchal notion of um, stealing and commodifying creatures from the natural world in order to appear macho. So I thought, oh, there's a, there's a good story here. Maybe I can link these time periods. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to work out how to do it. But once I realized that it should be the animals telling the story, then um, it, was all, it wasn't all plain sailing, but it was a lot of fun <laughs> from that on. But uh, that's the thing. You, 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 your interest is piqued by, you know, this, these mm. incidences. And you, but it's a long leap to, oh, the mammoth should narrate the story. Can you tell me how that, did it hit you like a lightning bolt or how did you basically come to that conclusion? Yeah. Because I would never have come to that conclusion. No, well, I didn't, I didn't initially at all. I I didn't really know how to approach the story. I was quite, um, quite wary of it. Uh, I could tell there was a good story to be told here, but I didn't really know how to do it. And I had a couple of goes at it, Um, early drafts where I, 
had you know, the story written from the point of view of one of the pioneers who's out looking for the bones. He's been hired to go out with this band of miscreants to dig up these creatures. And it sort of was a bit grim and Cormac McCarthy-esque and it just ran out of steam, really. It didn't really go anywhere. Um, so I didn't really know how to do it. I actually thought, oh, maybe the maybe it's not possible or maybe I'm just trying to put too many things together. And But at the time, I was working um, part-time at the RSPCA in the animal shelter and working with injured animals every day and becoming quite aware of their internal life and the way that they communicate with each other and with other species such as us. Mm. And, I, and I had a little epiphany one day. It, just, it did just kind of hit me one day. I thought, oh, why don't the animals tell the story? And that way I can have them as um, observers about our behavior and um, it removes me from the equation quite a lot, removes the humanity from it, and I can talk about humanity um, through through them. And once I worked that out, it was then a little bit daunting exercise of working out what kind of voice that they would speak in. Yes. So it is a genius solution. Now, you've touched on the my next question, the, the kind of voice that you want the narrator to have or, you know, and mm. for, for the other characters as well, which is speaking. But in particular, you, you you kind of pick up the book initially wondering, is it going to work? <laughs> and immediately you get the voice of this, of, of the narrator. How in the world did you, oh, I mean, there are so many questions, but how in the world did you formulate what that voice was going to be. I mean, it's a mammoth. You know, one even knows one or even knows what they think. No. Or what, or, or. So how in the world did you get to this stage? I've always enjoyed um, experimenting with voice in my work. And um, I mean, I'm a bit of a frustrated actor, really. I used to <laughs> act a little bit when I was younger on the stage very badly and um, would have loved to have pursued that career, but didn't have the, didn't have what it took for that. Um, and so I like to get into character as such when I'm writing. Um, but how do you, I've always got into human characters before and, and written human characters whilst walking around the room as a real sort of oral story and then sitting down and recording it. But this was different, obviously, because um, these are old creatures. How on earth would they, would they talk? And it took me a little while, but then I realized that they might talk in the kind of voices um, that corresponded to the time periods in which they were dug up because mm. they've all been they've all been dug up at different times. The, the mammoth was dug up in 1800 and so he automatically started to speak a little bit like a, a pompous, well-educated American um, gentleman, mm. whereas the Tyrannosaurus wasn't dug up until, although he's much older, wasn't dug up until 1991 mm. and spent a lot of time in Florida. So he speaks yes. a little bit like... Uh, uh, Keanu Reeves in uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, but the voice so... <laughs> was a, I mean, a, the voice was a, an, an unusual part of the process and quite a mysterious one. It's, you know, you always feel like a bit of a wanker when you're talking about it, but um, <laughs> I didn't really want to, I didn't know really what the mammoth would sound like until it was suddenly there. And it wasn't like I, sat down, you know, Monday morning, 9am thought, right, here we go. Time to write the mammoth. Um, I avoided it for, for months. <coughs> mm. Excuse me. I, I avoided it for months and, um, 
But I was sort of aware of the mammoth leaning over my shoulder, almost standing behind me, um, observing me, because I was doing all of this research into um, into the story and into the, the kind of lives um, that these creatures might have had. And it was almost like the mammoth was observing me and saying, okay, this is good. You seem to be working it out. You know how we lived. And then, you know, four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, just started talking and I began writing inauspiciously and those first five pages of the book Mm. um, we we hardly changed them in the end Mm. that was pretty much those are the first words I wrote in the book and all of a sudden there was a thousand words in the voice of this mammoth and I thought bloody hell that was that's quite a nice voice Um, I wonder can I keep that up and Mm. and that was it but it really those five pages just give me the grounding to be able to write the rest of the book and um yeah, from that point on, he was just there. I mm. can't really explain it. You spoke about uh, research. Now, did you, prior to this project, have an interest in dinosaurs or archaeology or, you know, this era, these people, these, no. be, these beasts? <laughs> no, no? More so, no more so than anyone else, really. Um, and I always liked dinosaurs. I mean, every, every kid likes dinosaurs, and yeah. I used to go to the Natural History Museum in Belfast and be amazed at the at the thought of these creatures that are quite hard for, particularly when you're a young human, to understand that, wait a minute, we weren't always in charge. There was things that mm-hmm. lived here before us that were monsters, essentially, and you wouldn't have stood a chance against them. So that's quite a thing for us to get our head around, you know, as humans. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was always, I always liked them, but I never really knew much about it, to be honest. Um, the research, I'm not a paleontologist or anything like that, and... Uh, not particularly well educated either, so I'm not really sure uh, how I, how I was going to go about it. I just dove straight in, really, and really enjoyed um, um, history for what it was. So, what did you do in terms of research, and how much did you feel that you needed to research before you could really get into the rest of the writing? Yeah, a lot. I mean, I, right. I really was. I really didn't want to start writing it until. I had done some pretty exhaustive research, but that was interesting too. It was a mixture of um, knowing generally where the story would go and then researching what I could on the internet and going as far as I possibly could on the net and then realizing I needed to revert to primary sources. So I would then get books out of the library or I would order obscure out-of-print university press books online, (laughs) wait for them to come, digest those and just cover all my bases. And the wow. idea was that I didn't really want to start writing it until I had quite an encyclopedic knowledge of the little world that I was uh, focusing on. Of course, you know, your best intentions going in, um, you think, okay, I've got it all covered, but then the story will take you off on a little um, um, sidebar and you realize you're suddenly in Kentucky and um <laughs> in a bourbon distillery and you think, wait a minute, I don't know anything about the, about the origin of bourbon. Now I have to go and research that. So I would put the story to a halt when I, when I came across one of those unexpected moments and think, okay, I'm not going to go any further. I don't really like to write um, historical fiction unless I have my bases covered. So I try to do it as much as I can. But the thing is, it's such a broad topic. How did you, did you, I mean, (laughs) to get that encyclopedic knowledge of this, this area, 
did you maybe at least narrow it down to a particular uh, sub area so that because otherwise you people have got PhDs in this they've studied it for years and years and years. <laughs> How did you know well, when I, you got there? <laughs> I did um, when I realised that the mammoth was dug up in eighteen hundred. So I thought, well, that's a good place for me to start, and. I was a little, then a little bit worried because I thought, well, there's 207 years in between then and the natural history auction, and I don't really want to be writing about every single year. Um, <laughs> but I, so I, I kept it confined to probably 18, 1800 to about 1804, and there were a few major human events at that time. Um, it was the real beginning of American democracy, um, the aftermath of the French Revolution, the the Second Irish Revolution. There was a few world things going on. So I was able to cast the mammoth. Um, I mean, some of them he was involved in. Others, I just cast him into them. So there's a mixture of fact and fiction going on with um, what actually happened to him back in the um, early 1800s. Um, but I did restrict it to a few years because I thought, if I don't do that, it's going to go on forever. I'm going to never be able to stop writing this book it's going to be yes 10, 000, but it's 10, not just that time long. period it's also uh research into you know 60 million years ago <laughs> and that yeah, sort of I'm, thing that you had to do so what did you do to like i'm interested in the research process how you, uh, you surely your brain couldn't retain all of that information did you have some kind of system you know what i mean mm, um <sighs> Not really. It's <laughs> a pretty, oh pretty terrible system. I know um, it, it all feels desperately random when I say it now, but um, mm-hmm. I, I did read a lot of books about the um, end of the Ice Age and the mm-hmm. early days of mankind-influenced climate change whenever our ancestors turned up. Um, they were a bit more advanced than the Neanderthals and used tools and weapons and basically wiped out all of the creatures that roamed around and um, started to change the, the climate. Um, so that stuff, there's been quite a lot written about that. And there's different theories that went on, but I mm. enjoyed re- reading those kind of books because, you know, it's like watching an old caveman movie or something like that. There are mm-hmm. loads of fun just um, diving into that world. Um, mm. So there but, but there are huge gaps in the book. You know, I, I, I spend a bit of time right at the end of the Ice Age and then jump forward quite a bit. Um, mm. So... Whatever happens in between, I just didn't want to get into that. <laughs> yeah, sure. So can you give us an idea, just really um, almost like a time frame of key milestones of when you first got the idea, how long you researched for, when did you kind of write those first five pages and and how long it took to your first to the end of your first draft? Can you just take us through a bit of a timeline so we can get an idea of how long things took? Mm. Yeah, okay. So this is 2020. The book has just come out. Mm. So my last book came out in 2014. Mm-hmm. But you've got to remember that when a, by the time a book comes out, you're probably already started on the next one So mm. because the final the final year. So it was a bit of been about 2012, 2013. I um, had heard about the natural history auction and then I read some of President Jefferson's um, correspondence so, he wrote a lot of letters and a lot of them hadn't been released. So they released a whole new bunch of his correspondence. And I read those, spotted the mammoth link and thought, oh, I wonder, is there a story here? But I assumed it was something I wouldn't write until I was a lot older. I thought, well, it probably needs quite a bit of work on it, this one. Um, So it was in the back of my mind for about a year. And I kept um, looking at sources and 
ordering books and sort of gradually doing the research in the background whilst I was waiting for my second book to come out. And then once it came out, I started to concentrate on on it a lot more um, time on research. So from about 2014 until probably 2017, maybe 18, mm-hmm. um, just constant reading and research. I didn't wow. write. Yeah, I didn't. I just, I mean, partly it's that writer's instinct of avoiding the work. Yeah. <laughs> Where I think I'm, I'm working here because I'm reading books. Um, and if anyone says to me, are you working on a book? Like, yeah, sure I am. Look at me reading. <laughs> um, so you can, you can fool yourself into believing that you're working, but I was, you know, yes. but just, just no actual writing. <laughs> well, in that case, uh, in that period of research during that time about say, you know, ballpark, how many hours a week were you dedicating to that, to your research before the well, writing? Well, I, I was working as well at the time. Um, so I would probably say probably about 20 hours a week at that stage. Wow, that's still significant. Mm-hmm. Tre- treating it like a part-time job essentially mm-hmm. and doing a lot of reading, some of which I find, you know, quite a slog because there are quite some old old academic books. They're not that easy to get through. Um, but I'm, I'm the sort of person who makes notes inside. I'm one of those terrible people who will write in books. Oh. So I, I know <laughs> so I have, <laughs> instead of, instead of doing the right thing and having a big notebook, um, if you, if you ask me to show you all my research, I'm like, well, it's all those books over there that have, that have got lots of handwritten notes all over them. Um, <laughs> So it was a bit messy. I'm not very well organized with that stuff. So that was, but at the same time, I was thinking, okay, I'm working on this story. It's a bit nebulous. Um, I'm not really sure what the final format is going to be like. There was just no sense of the final book at mm. all this, at this stage. And, you know, as a writer, sometimes you're, you, you come up with the idea for a project and you think, I'll spend a few years researching this whilst I'm doing something else. <laughs> and you just don't know if it's got legs. So you're, 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 you're exploring to see if there's a story there. I'd rather do that than sit and write hundreds of thousands of words before I realize, oh, wait a minute, this is a waste of time. So I was reluctant to write anything until about three or four years into the research. And then I tried doing those early drafts from the point of view of a human character. And it was a disaster. It was a disaster. And I thought, ah, this is stuffed. This, this, this is just never going to work. And so I probably put it aside then for maybe maybe almost a year, whilst oh. probably whilst probably working on something else. And it wasn't it wasn't then until I had the idea of um, incorporating the animals' voices more that I dove back into it with gusto. So when you did that and you wrote those first five pages, hmm. that uh, presumably that kicked you off. What kind of um, how long then did you take to the end of well that draft and how many, what time commitment were you devoting to that each week? Yeah, well, I was working part-time at the animal shelter, which was um, about 20 to 25 hours a week. Um, So I had quite a bit of time to dedicate to the book. Um, So once I started that draft, um, it probably took me about a year to do the first draft in the animal's voices mainly because I had to, I was doing about 20 hours a week on it and I'm fairly productive as a writer. I can get stuff done. I'm the sort of person that gets it, gets the work done. Um, and I'm also not too precious about the first draft. I will, you know, 
I'll try hard, but I won't try as hard as I possibly could because I'm aware that every, that, that everything will be revised by me and an eventual editor at a publishing house. So there's no point in being too precious about every word of it. Um, so it's a nice sort of, the first draft was a nice sort of generous draft where I indulged myself a lot, went off on lots of, lots more tangents than are in the book, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And um, really enjoyed it. I have to enjoy the process, particularly the first draft. If I don't enjoy it, then I think it really comes through very strongly in the work if you if the author is, is actually hating working on the project. Um, so I was doing that about 20 hours a week, probably for a year. Right. And did you, um, you say you get the work done. Did you have goals as in word count targets or anything like that in order to keep the momentum going? Yeah, I, I do have the word count, the word count thing. I will basically try to do about a thousand words a day on the, mm-hmm. on an early, early draft. Um, and some people think might think that's a lot. Other people might think that's not much. Um, everyone's different, but I, about a thousand seems to work for me. I've, I've narrowed that down over the years. I've tried different ones. I've tried 2000, I've tried 1500, 1250, just to see at what point I start to burn out because my creative brain can only really function for a a limited number of hours in the day before I just start writing dross. And so I tend, I've, I've sort of worked out that a thousand is probably, I could probably do a little bit more than that, Mm -hmm. but just so it's not awful I'll stick to about a thousand a day whenever I'm working so I'm working on a novel now and I'm sticking to exactly a thousand a day so I just want to circle back to because you spent three or four years researching not and Mm. you said not knowing whether it was going to lead somewhere now that's a a 20 hours a week for three or four years is a long is a big commitment not knowing it's going to lead somewhere so what (laughs) kept you going I mean that is that's a lot of people wouldn't do that well, I'll tell you what kept me going, and I haven't said this to anyone. Um, it's basically because I had given up as a writer. That's why I was able to do it. Um, after my second, yeah, after my second book came out, I sort of thought, yeah, I don't know about this writing lark. Um, there wasn't my book. My first two books didn't get much of a response. Um, didn't get many readers, and I sort of thought, well, that was good fun, but maybe I should do something else with my life. So I literally thought, that's it. I'm done. I actually was at um, the Byron Bay Writers Festival with, yeah. and in, in a restaurant with a bunch of writers and Chrissy Neen was chatting to me. And I said, oh, by the way, Chrissy, I quit. I've decided to quit being a writer. And she was appalled because it's, it's her whole life. And I was like, no, I'm done. I'm fed up with it. It's, it's, it's rubbish. It's stupid. And I, I decided to go and do something else. So I went, got a job at the RSPCA where I was volunteering. Mm-hmm. They offered me a job and I said, yep, that's it. I'm back in the real world. And so when I had the idea for the story, I was like, curse you, brain. Don't give me any more um, dumb novel ideas. And this one's so enticing. So um, and it seemed like such a a bizarre, challenging novel if it was ever going to be written, which I really didn't think it would be. So I just was enjoying um, the idea of toying with the novel um, and and getting into the history of it and letting it form without any expectation that I would that it would not only ever be published but ever be written and it was and I think that sort of letting go and thinking oh well I'm no longer going to be an author because mm. that, that that didn't work out for me maybe that helped me right 
And so you've you, let's you get to the point where you finish that draft, you know, in the voice of the mammoth. Mm. What happened then in terms <laughs> of getting people like trying to explain this to right. yep. publishers and stuff? I mean, what ha- tell me what happened then and what people's responses were? Yeah, that's the next problem. Um, after <laughs> year after years of um, researching a book that I thought, what are you doing? You're not really working on a book, are you? You better not be. And then um, accidentally sort of writing one and accidentally <laughs> enjoying enjoying it and thinking, oh well. I actually have a book here and then you read that draft and you think there's no way anyone in the industry is going to want a bar of this. Mm-hmm. This is, this is not the kind of book that gets published because <laughs> publishing is publishing is so often, and it's, it's a harsh thing to say, but it's so often a very conservative business yes. and um, um, publishers are very risk averse and they don't like to take chances on things because they're putting a lot of money into manuscripts and they don't like yeah. to take too too many chances because they take too many chances it doesn't work out and they're finished mm-hmm. um so i was aware then that i had this manuscript um in its early early stages and i could see how how it could be improved with, with further drafts and how an editor might really enjoy it because they could say oh well let's take out this whole section that doesn't work but let's write something said in 1805 instead you know there was lots for an editor to get their teeth into um, but I had no idea how people would react to it. And um, I just assumed people would think, you're, you're off your rocker. This is never going to get published. And to my absolute shock, mm. um, when my agent read it, when he said, oh, well, I'll absolutely send this round. I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure this is a good idea? They're going to think I'm crazy. But the response was amazing. Um, yeah. Pretty much every publisher in Australia wanted to read it and there was quite a few of them interested in signing it and um, I was absolutely shocked by that and I can only attribute that to perhaps perhaps we're at a point now particularly in Australian literature where um, the publishers probably receive a lot of very samey manuscripts um, very similar stories perhaps sort of archetypal Australian tales and very good and all but Maybe they're looking for something different, something that they can uh, that they can get behind. And you got to remember that people in publishing, they want interesting stories too. They don't want to just churn things out that are all the same all the time. So maybe it just came along at a good time. It was a, an odd story, and clearly there was some um, reticence from some of the publishers who, you know, it's all very well when you send a manuscript out and the publisher and the acquisitions team are interested, but then marketing take a look at it and they think, Mm. oh, no way, there's no way we're going to touch this. (laughs) Um, And and marketing have an increasingly, you know, um, strong role in acquisitions these days. Yes. Um, So um, I wasn't surprised when some people turned it down, but it was nice to see a lot of people were really enjoying it. Yes, yes. And then my ultimate publisher, whenever UQP came along, all credit to them, um, they really loved it instantly enthusiastic for what's a very offbeat unusual probably hard to describe story um i think that obviously people were intrigued but as soon as you read it it's it's it is it comes back to that very strong voice immediately believable because you do wonder 
you do wonder whether it's going to work and and hmm. and it works from you know the first paragraph so tell me about so you're writing you've got this part-time job at the RSPCA you just you're committing 20 hours a week or or thereabouts you aiming for a thousand words a day what kind of routine did you have for yourself in order to make all of that happen was it a set routine or were you writing in snatched moments you know how how did that work on a practical level yeah i'm pretty disciplined as a, a writer um generally as a worker no matter what job i have i like to be fairly organized and get things done and um not um, put things off so when i'm writing like i like i am at the moment trying to promote a book plus also write one for god's sakes what an, what an idiot mm-hmm. um i i am quite disciplined so i will sit at my desk um not too early but fairly early um maybe around about 10 or something by the time i mm-hmm. get all my other business done answer my emails and i will work pretty steadily until probably one in the afternoon and those three hours that's when i get my work done and right. um and I don't do any work after that. What? <laughs> yep. Yep. So well, I will I will I will work in like a real burst of energy and concentration and get my work done and then I and then I walk away. Well, what do you do? <laughs> oh, oh, oh you know, what do I do the rest of my day? Ah <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, yes, that's true. That does make me sound like a Complete <laughs> flake, doesn't it? Yeah. No, no, um, not at all. It's whatever works for you. But what no, do you um, do? I will often do other work. Um, so I still do a lot of freelance work. So I, I might do um, write a review or write an article um, or um, conduct an interview with someone um, right. or you know go outside and, um, and do some errands. Um, I do live on an island, so it's quite tempting, to, particularly in the nice weather, to go outside and go for a swim or something. I do quite like mixing uh, my internal life with an external one. Um, yes, okay. I, <laughs> in other words, you have a life. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. I, I, I don't, um, yeah, I, I like to have my writing be compartmentalized as part of my life and not dominate my life completely. Right, okay. Um, and uh, and you live on Phillip Island, right? Um, so I'm intrigued. I just want to come back to you because you said something about it was while working at the animal shelter that you witnessed the way the animals kind of talked to each other or interacted with each other that kind mm. of planted the seed of ha- having the animals, well, ha- having having the voice of the, the mammoth and, the, and other animals. Um, what... What was it that you observed? What was it about their behaviour that kind of made you go, oh, what's happening here? Well, at the RSPCA, I had a very specific role. I worked in um, the isolation unit, which was where animals who were sick or injured were recovering or sometimes had behavioural problems where they basically detested humans and, and we had to work on building trust with them. Um, and so you're working very closely with animals who there for, who are there for a very long time. Some of those animals were in the shelter for a few years. Um, well, sometimes that's because of legal reasons that, you know, we had maybe seized the animals from a, uh, a, a puppy mill or, 
um, or something like that. And we were, you know, conducting a legal case against the against wow. the breeders. And so we would have to hold on to them in the meantime. Um, so it was an interesting opportunity to be able to work very closely with animals whom you see every day or three days a week, whatever it was. And so the animals get to know the humans coming in and um, you build a lot of rapport with them. And I just became very aware of the panoply of um, individual personalities in what we call domestic animals, pets, um, cats, dogs, rabbits, and so on, guinea pigs. <laughs> um, and they're really strong identities mm-hmm. and the way that they would interact with each other to establish hierarchy and territory, mm-hmm. but also um, friendship. Um, some very unusual friendships would spring up between animals, sometimes not from the same species. Mm-hmm. and. That was very interesting to observe, and you, you you just couldn't be unaware of their internal life, and the way that they would communicate with us, their needs, and whether they were whether whether they were not feeling well, um, whether they were happy, um, you just become very attuned to um, the language of animals when you work with them in such a close proximity. I'm sure zookeepers and so on probably say the same thing, mm. um, and so that was a real breakthrough for me because I, you know, a lot of people just think uh, cats are just stupid creatures who just come in for the heat and the, and the food. <laughs> but, but when you work with them every day, you get quite a different, a different idea of um, an intelligence um, and, and personality at work. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so now you mentioned that you are working because you're promoting this book, but you're working on another novel. Uh, can you tell us anything about that? <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I've been working on it for a little while. Um, I'm doing a lot of research the past sort of two years. And um, it was, it's basically, I don't want to say too much, but it, it, it is a spin-off from the research that I was doing with mammoth, I discovered um, something unusual about how uh, the bones of dinosaurs and megafauna were perceived in the ancient world. Um, it's all very well us talking about digging up dinosaur bones in the modern world and either being confused as to what they were as they were in the 1800s, or we now know generally what they are, um, at least we think we do. Um, but you've got to remember, people have been digging these bones up for thousands of years. And I became fascinated with the idea of what did people think they were in ancient Egypt or ancient Greece when they dug them up? And they often didn't had no clue because it must have seemed even even the bones of a whale. You dig that up in ancient Greece. What are you going to think it is? (laughs) Some some sort of some sort of monster. (laughs) And so I'm looking at the origin of um, ancient Greek myths. And how they can often um, they often come from the misunderstanding or misunderstood um, dinosaur bones. Ah, and okay, fantastic. And so, how far into it are you? Yes, um, I'm powering through the first draft as we speak. Um, I'm I'm adopting a very unusual work process because I am an idiot and can't. <laughs> um, can't just like decide on something <laughs> that that works for me. I have to do it different every time. Okay. So I'm, I'm I'm doing a draft entirely in verse. <gasps> I'm sorry. Yep. Oh. I know. 
So my first draft is entirely in verse um, in the form of a Sicilian septet. Um, So there's 70 chapters, each with 13 verses. Each verse has seven lines and they rhyme. And I'm doing that for a reason. Um, It's a, a mad thing to do but I'm doing it for a reason because it's set in ancient Greece and there's it's got this sort of Homeric epic poem yeah, feel to right. it I, I, I wanted to challenge myself to do that <laughs> in order to give in order to give a musicality to it oh so my then God. my next my next draft will not be in verse it will be in conventional prose but it will be informed by the first draft and hopefully some of the musicality will um, will come through oh my god yeah. that you really know how to make things hard for yourself <laughs> <laughs> i really do i don't know i uh, and i'll tell you even even worse than that the second draft my my first prose draft of this which will be the second draft of the book um it will be a reverse prose draft so i'm starting at the end and working oh my, my way back god and the reason i'm doing that is because um so that by the time i reach the beginning of the prose draft the voice will be really strong and well established. So then, my third draft will be will be a um, conventional. Will be in draft. ancient Greek and Latin. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I can't wait to read that. Um, all right. So, um, and finally, what would be your top three tips to aspiring writers who might be in a position when you were that time sitting in? the restaurant at the Byron Writers Festival um, where you thought, oh, you know, I'm giving up kind of thing. What would your advice to those aspiring writers be? Top three tips, top three tips. So someone who's not written a book before or someone who has, someone who's not written not, before? Well, actually, who hasn't, who has not written a book. Before. Right, who, who's, who's not written a book and maybe you've but got some But they're writing, ideas. yeah. Right, yeah. They're, yep, you're writing, you're, you're working on ideas, hmm. you're trying to work out if you've got... Um, enough of an idea for a novel. All right, there's a couple of good tips, I think, for this. Um, mm. One of them is that you, you're not always necessarily working on the book that you think you're working on. Mm. So um, sometimes you've got a bunch of ideas, and those ideas are parts of different stories, or sometimes they seem very different ideas, but they're actually part of the same story, but you just can't see it yet. So I would say if you're it depends on what sort of how your creative mind works. But if you're the sort of person who's always coming up with little ideas it, and they seem very disparate, they could actually be part of the same project and you just haven't worked out how to tie them together yet. So um, try to um, look at your ideas and then take a big step back and um, try to work out if maybe this is all part of one big project that you're working on. And maybe not all the ideas will stick, but... You might have a character here who's doing this, a character there who's doing that. They might actually be part of the same story, but you just can't see it because you're too, you're, you're too far, you're too close to them. You just need to mm. take a bit of a step back and see if those are um, linked somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's one piece of advice. Um, the other piece I would say is um, don't be so hard on yourself. Um, if you, I mean, I'm doing this thousand word a day thing. Um, but this is, I'm working on my fourth book and, it, and it's going to be published. So I have a publishing deal. So I have to um, instill a little bit of discipline into myself in order to get this done. If you don't have a publishing deal and you're something that you'd hope to have, um, 
don't be so rough on yourself. You don't need to act like um, Stephen King, you know, when you're starting out. Like, relax and enjoy it a bit more. You know, shake your shoulders out and have a bit of fun with it and be willing to experiment and go down avenues and you don't know where you're going and it might end up a dead end, but it doesn't matter because it's all grist for the mill. It's all part of the process. Loads of writers will write hundreds of thousands of words before they can see where the um, 60,000 word story is. Mm. And linked to that is um, this idea of you you need to keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) If you've got a creative mind, then you are... Um, you are, that's a blessing. You, that's, that's something that a lot of people wish they had, but don't have. And, um, and so, um, be gentle with yourself and allow yourself to, um, keep going with it just because, I mean, I tried to stop and my mind wouldn't let me stop. Mm. And, um, your reality sometimes tries to step in and say, all right, you know, you need to pay rent. So, you know, quit quit this nonsense and go and get a job but like you said earlier sometimes you just find all the snatches of moments where you write there's a million ways to write a book um just because someone tells you they did it this way doesn't mean that's the only way to do it and doesn't mean that's the way that's right for you there are literally a million different ways to do it and you know as an established author myself it's frustrating for me knowing that because i seem to be willing to go through each of those million ways yes it seems to be All right. This is all really great advice. Congratulations on your book. Uh, The buzz on this book is is deafening. So um, congratulations. And I know it's going to be, it's going to go like um, the absolute clappers up the charts. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today, Chris. No worries. Thank you, Valerie. There we go, Chris Flynn. So wow, A, wow, (laughs) but also B, Writing your whole novel in verse, I so know. that you can then rewrite it. I just like wow! wow. Again, what a way to just, make it happy. Just, yourself. Wow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go Chris! Wow! Yes, go Chris! All right. Well, I think it'd be really interesting to see how that turns out, um, and no doubt that that will come out uh, soon. All right, let's move on. We're almost at the end of this week's episode. Um, what are you doing in the coming week, Al? Uh, I'm starting the school holidays. Oh, really? Yep, I am, yes, doing that. And I'm, um, what else am I doing? Um, I can't well, think any school holidays. I know. I've obviously been cheering about the book going to print. Uh, yeah, mm. I'm just, I don't know, maybe just working on my, my on my next book. I have actually been working on my next book. My, I'm just, I'm still dribs and drabs, but my my dribs are now sort of like 1500 words rather than 500 so oh wow you know yeah so when I do get to it the 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 flow is much more uh much more happening for me which is very good news yes that's great (laughs) and so when the fire star comes out in September have you um done any planning for book launches and stuff or you're really seeing what happens with COVID and the rest of it 
Well, for the most part, I have to see what happens with COVID. I am mm. booked in to go to a uh, children's literary festival, like the couple of days around the date that the book comes out on the 1st of right. September. Um, so at this stage, that's still going ahead, okay. uh, which is a bit fun. Uh, but it looks like a really intensive, like lots of workshops for me. That that particular one is going to be lots of workshops for me, like mostly for years 9 to 11. So I'm actually in the process of kind of thinking about how I'm going to put those workshops together, um, you know, because obviously they, when you do a workshop like that, it's the kind of thing that you hope that you can then just take to lots of places. Like you want to mm. do the workshop right from the start and then you can take it, you know, to all the various things that you go to. So I'm sort of, I'm putting in some some hard yards working through that at the moment. And um, there, yeah, it's hard because you can't really book school visits or anything. It's just a matter of seeing what kind of happens. I guess I'll be doing some bookshop visits, like just going to yeah. um, see booksellers and and stuff like that. And I think that I will do will will do some kind of uh, party in your kids' next read because that's oh, of yes. course one of the joys of having a massive online Facebook community um, of yeah. more than 12,000 members is wow. that if I do a live stream event of some kind in there, it's, you know, there's a good chance that quite a few people will see it, which is yes. um, great. And also it's just lovely to do something with your own community. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to to that. But my um, Alison Rushby, who is my co, one mm. of my co-moderators in that group, there are three of us, mm. um, myself, Alison Rushby and Megan Daly, who is, of course, celebrity librarian and author. Um, uh, Alison Rushby has a book out the same week. So we are both celebrating a book launch in the same week, uh, which is quite exciting. So we might do some kind of, I don't know, I don't don't know. I haven't actually thought about it too much just yet, but there'll be something there. Um, And I don't know, maybe, Val, we can do something in, you know, the So You Want to Be a Writer community because it'd be fun to to do some kind of thing there. So hopefully... um, we can do some kind of live event in there, which will be fun. Yes. Um, and, yeah, it just we'll do what we can with with what we have. I think it's all anybody <laughs> can do right now. Um, yes. I think I'm going to be on a lot of podcasts. I'm getting quite a few requests, interestingly right. enough. People have realised I can talk. Um, <laughs> and so I don't know where they got it from. And so I will be uh, – I've been invited to do quite a few podcasts, which is fun because, you know, I enjoy them. It's a – you know, if you – as I said – at the start, you know, when we're talking about the link, look for the stuff you like to do. And I love talking about writing. I really love it. So, um, you know, that's a good fit for me. Fantastic. All right. So um, where do we find you online now? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontaitwriter. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, please do join us in the Facebook listener community. So Mm. just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. It's free to join and it's a fantastic group of like-minded writers emerging and established. Um, And I just love them. I think they're awesome. So see you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.